If you have your copy of God's Word, you can take it out and turn with me to Judges chapter 1. Judges is in the Old Testament, right after the book of Joshua, so it's towards the front of your Bible. And if you could keep that open, we're going to be looking at some verses surrounding the passage that I will be reading uh, this morning, and so it might be helpful as I refer to different things uh, in the passage that we won't actually read um, when we do our reading of Scripture. But this fall, we are studying the Old Testament book of Judges. Uh, Why in the world would we do such a thing? If you've ever read Judges, you might be asking that question, Uh, and that's Actually, the answer, uh, we want to be a church that studies uh, books that people tend to shy away from because it's God's Word. And so this is typically, Judges is an understudied book of the Bible. Uh, Listen to what Ralph Davis, he's a commentator, has done some work on the book of Judges. I'll be referring to him uh, throughout uh, the series, but listen to this quote. The church has a problem with the book of Judges. It's earthy, so puzzling so violent, and in a word, so strange, so much so that the church can scarcely stomach it. Then he says this, the sentiment seems to be that if we can just study, I love this, study the epistles long enough, maybe it will go away. The church has her way of dealing with embarrassing scriptures, he says, and that is, just ignore it. Well, we don't want to be a church that ignores embarrassing scriptures. And so that's why we're going to study the book of Judges. And uh, if you've ever read the book of Judges, it's like the movie that you can't uh, uh, quit watching. It's hard to actually put it down. Because this fall, we're going to see some of the craziest, wild, uh, best stories in the entire Bible. We're going to see a woman nail a tent peg through a man's head. Are the kids paying attention yet? (laughs) We're going to see an evil king who's overweight get stabbed in the belly with a knife and the fat closes over the knife and he has a bowel movement. You can laugh. It's actually meant to be funny. There's some humor in the way the author writes the story. We're going to see people getting their eyes carved out of their heads. It's going to be, at times, this fall, downright gruesome. We're also going to study the book of Judges because lots of people in my 12 years of ministry, I always get the question, what do we do with the Old Testament? And what do we do with a book like the book of Judges? You see, we're going to look at Judges, and what you're going to realize is that the people of God are not all that great. And you're going to read and see that the people of God sometimes are downright evil and terrible. And what in the world do we do with that? And I hope that as we go through this book, that you're going to see above all, is you're going to see a God who is really, really patient and really gracious with His people, people like you and me who struggle to love Him. I pray that as a result of our time in the book of Judges, that you will see God's character in a deeper and richer way. And so with that in mind, let's jump into this messy, crazy book called the book of Judges. Let me begin by 
reading God's word for us. Follow along with me as I read uh, Judges chapter 1. We'll look at 1 through 8 and then 2, 1 through 4. This is God's word. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we might fight against the Canaanites. I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. And so Simeon went with him. And then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. That's strange, isn't it? We'll find out why in a little bit. Well, it's actually here. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps from under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, and they captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare to you. Let's pray. And ask for God's help with this passage this morning. We're going to need it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do need your help always when we deal with your word, but particularly this morning, and we're going to need it throughout um, the whole study of the book of Judges. And so would you help us, uh, starting uh, this week with this passage, would you take it and apply it to our hearts this morning? I pray that uh, this morning and uh, this fall you would show us our hearts. Show us how desperately we need you. And as you show us our hearts and drive us to the end of ourselves, I pray that you would also show us the good news of the gospel, that you would show us the true king and the true judge, Jesus, uh, this fall uh, through this book. We would be very thankful if you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I just simply want to give you an overview or a preview, if you will, to the book of Judges. And so we're going to just talk about three themes that we're going to see uh, really run throughout the book of Judges. And the first thing I will say is if you're looking for one theme, overarching theme, over and over and over through the book of Judges, Judges in a sentence can be summarized a story of God's rebellious people and God's relentless grace. That's it. Over and over, God's rebellious people, and God's relentless grace towards them. 
To understand the book of Judges, we're going to see three themes uh, this morning that will help us. And the first one is uh, the people's rebellion. Secondly, God's justice. And thirdly, God's grace. So rebellion, justice, and grace are the things we'll look at this morning in this passage. So let's uh, jump in with number one, uh, the people's rebellion. Look at verse one. After the death of Joshua, that's how the book begins, and it's very significant, and we need to pay attention to that because the book of Judges, right from the beginning, is telling us that we need to look backward in order to really understand it. To understand Judges, you must first understand Joshua. Judges has to be read through the lens of the book of Joshua to really understand what's going on. And so what's the book of Joshua about? Well, in a sentence, it's about Israel regaining or taking possession of the promised land. The book of Joshua ends with Canaan, the Canaanites being subdued, uh, but there's still some Canaanites remaining and hanging out in the promised land. The book of Judges opens... And God has commanded the Israelites, each tribe, to drive out the remaining Canaanites from the promised land. Why is God commanding them to be driven out? We're going to talk about this again, but it's not ethnic cleansing. It's theological cleansing. The Canaanites are worshiping idols and other gods, and God wants His people in His land to only worship Him, and so He is commanding His people to drive them out of the land. And so the issue is covenant faithfulness towards God. And so the question then is, well, then how did the people do? We didn't read this, but if you have your Bible open, look with me at chapter 1, verses 27 and following. And if you keep reading down through there, you're going to see a constant refrain. Look at verse 27. Manasseh did not, this is intentional, driving home a point, did not drive out the inhabitants. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Zebulun did not. On and on and on as he talks about the tribes, did not, did not. Chapter 2, verse 2, which we read, sums it all up this way. The angel of God comes and says, you've not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? What have they done? They have made covenant with the Canaanites. And God has told them not to. And in chapter 2, verse 2, it says that they failed to break down their altars. And the end result is that idols are being worshipped among the people of God. And so let me summarize it this way. God's people are half-hearted. They're divided in their loyalties. Why are they divided in their loyalties? If you were to read chapter 1 and read between the lines a little bit, uh, they are divided in their loyalties Because of convenience. It was going to be cheaper and it made more sense for them financially just to simply enslave the Canaanites rather than drive them out. In other words, I love Tim Keller succinctly says, convenience trumped obedience for them. And so what's the takeaway? What's the application for us this morning uh, for this first point? Well, I think it's this. God wants all of you this morning. God wants every single area of your life, not just parts of it. God is after total obedience, not just partial obedience. Look at verse 19, very interesting. 
If you look at verse 19, it says that the Israelites could not drive them out. Is that true? Well, they had God on their side. Of course they could, but it says they could not. Chapter 2, verse 2 again, seems to contradict this. And it's as if God is saying, you say you could not, and I see it as you simply won't, and didn't really want to. You see, Israel thought that they had good reasons for not following completely after God, and God sees every one of their excuses as flimsy at best. And I find this deeply challenging and very searching for us this morning. And here's the question. I want you to think about your life this morning as you sit there, and I want you to ask this question. Where are you saying, I can't, but God is saying, you won't? Because you really don't want to. I can't forgive him. I can't forgive her for what they did to me. Or is it that we refuse? Is it we simply won't because deep down we want to hold on to the anger and we want to get even and make someone else pay? I cannot stop working and rest and be with my family. They need me at the office. And if I'm not there, things will fall apart. They really need me. You can't or you won't. I can't have a better relationship with my spouse. You can't or is it simply that you don't want to do the hard work that intimacy requires? You see, where are we saying this morning, whatever, Surely God doesn't mean I've got to give that over to him as well. Where are you saying I can't, but God is actually saying you really deep down just don't want to? Over and over in the book of Judges, we're going to see this, that God's grace is going to come and remain faithful to the Israelites despite their obedience, and that is a tremendous comfort. But also the book of Judges is going to bring us face to face with our own rebellion. And we're going to see that God's grace also includes seeking to remove our self-deception because of the rebellion that that resides deep inside our own hearts. First thing we see is the people's, God's people's rebellion. And secondly, we see the theme of justice uh, running uh, through the book of Judges. And uh, this is one of those sections, too, that I think we can hear a lot about if you've been in and around the Bible. And so listen to what's being said here. These are God's people, and God's actually commanding them to do these things. Okay, and it should wake us up. Verse 4, the people of Israel were called by God to drive and defeat 10,000 people who are living uh, in the promised land. Verse 6, they captured Adonai Bezek, and they cut off his thumbs and big toes. And then here it is, verse 8, they strike Jerusalem, they lock the doors, and they burn it to the ground. And our modern ears have a hard time with this, don't they? And some of you sitting here this morning, maybe you hear this and you say, that's it right there, Jason, you just put your finger on the reason why I'm not a Christian. How in the world can you worship a God 
that would tell his followers to kill innocent people. I don't get it. And if that's where you are, we're glad you're here this morning. Give me a little bit to try to respond to that sort of objection. Because I think two things are worth noting here in this passage. And the first one is this. The Canaanites are not innocent people. If you look back over the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, you see them doing some really horrible things. They kill children, they abuse the elderly and the poor, they practice all sorts of sexual immorality. It was a brutal and an evil civilization, and there is not a one of us who would walk into what was going on with the Canaanites into their society and say, ah, it's not that big a deal, whatever. No, all of us would be floored by the things that were going on. And so therefore, in this very unique period in biblical history, God commands the Israelites to be agents of judgment on the Canaanites. What Meredith Klein called the intrusion judgment. In other words, what we see here is an inbreaking of God's judgment into the present. This was not ethnic cleansing. This was theological cleansing. It was a cleansing of the land of idolatry. And here's something else worth noting. This is not good guys versus bad guys. <laughs> no. We're going to see that the good guys, so to speak, are really, really evil and just as bad as the Canaanites and as God's enemy. So this is not good guys versus bad guys. This is actually God's justice that we see. Secondly... Look at verses 4 and 7. This is the whole thumbs and toes bit. The Israelites invading the city, they take this ruler, Adonai Bezek, and they cut off his thumbs and big toes. Why in the world would they do that? Well, look at verse 7. It's very telling. As I have done, God has repaid me. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, this is what I used to do when I would capture kings. And he recognizes, and I think that's just uh, very significant, he recognizes this, that he's getting what he deserves. And that justice is being served. And maybe you think, okay, I get that, that helps, but I'm not sure God's a God of judgment. I mean, I can't really buy this, you say. That's offensive to me. I just want to think of God as being a God of love. Consider this. Uh, this helped me more with this issue of God's judgment and justice, perhaps more than anything throughout um, my time as a Christian. Uh, uh, Miroslav Wolf is a theologian at Yale University. He's not from the U.S., he's from Eastern Europe. He experienced firsthand the violence that took place in the early 90s. And if you're not familiar, uh, there was a war in Eastern Europe that was basically about ethnic cleansing and it's been described as Europe's deadliest conflict since World War II. Listen to, how he, he, listen to how he describes the war scene. This is a quote. The cities and villages were first plundered and then burned, leveled to the ground. And then our daughters and sisters were raped. And fathers and brothers had their throats slit. And then he makes this thesis. He says, the only way you can convince these people not to pick up a machine gun and enter into the war themselves and enter into the violence is to assume and assure them 
that God is a God of judgment and vengeance. He writes, my thesis, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home to believe that human nonviolence results from a belief in God's refusal to judge. Wow. You see what he's saying? The only people that can settle into the idea that God doesn't care about justice are the people that live in the suburbs. The people that live sheltered lives and comfortable lives who have never seen mass devastation and cruelty and horrific acts of violence. Because he says when you have tasted those acts of injustice, the idea that God will judge and give vengeance is not unsettling, but it's actually comforting. You see that? You see the point is we all, don't we? We all deep down in our souls want justice in the world. We all want evil to be dealt with, don't we? You want a God who is just. Because that means he deals and takes sin very seriously. Because don't you want someone who takes the evils that have been committed against you seriously? You want someone who takes the evils of abuse and betrayal and wounds against you? Do you want someone that takes those seriously? We do, because if they didn't, that would mean all the evil acts committed against you would go unchecked. It would mean that every form of oppression and cruelty and genocide and poverty and sexual abuse would go unchecked. Think about it this way. What if God were to just say, uh, if we follow this logic out and he were to look at the ugliness in the world, and the brokenness, and the pain, and the violence, and just say, eh, whatever. I'm just never going to deal with this. I'm just going to love them. If a judge, a human judge, did that, we would run them out of town so fast they wouldn't know what hit them. Keep following the logic, though. You see where this is going? If God is just... And he's committed to punishing sin and evil. You see where this leads? You see where it eventually leads? Where does it eventually lead? Right here. Right straight to you. Right straight to your heart. Because the Bible says that your heart and my heart is full of evil and terrible things. And so if God has to punish sin and evil then what about me? You see, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Thank goodness the sermon's not over. (laughs) Third point. Chapter 2, verse 1. I find this to be amazing, friends. Keep praying that your pastor would be amazed by the gospel. Because I've been amazed by the gospel this week. Um, I'm amazed at the Bible... I'm amazed at this passage. Listen to chapter 2, verse 1. They've disobeyed, and yet look at what God says. I will never break my covenant with you. God uses Israel as acts and agents of justice in the book of Judges. He uses people who at the very same time themselves demonstrate extreme wickedness. 
Friends, we are going to see things in this book that are very, very gruesome, and we're going to see horrific sexual abuse that will make the hair stand up on the back of your head. And you know who's committing these acts of wickedness that we're going to see this fall? God's own people. Those uh, that seem, uh, that are supposed to be following after God are just as evil, perhaps more evil, uh, than their enemies. And yet God sees this and continues over and over and over to deal graciously with them and forgive them and make promises and be loving towards them. And then that begs the question, doesn't it? How? How is that possible? How do we see, if God, how can He be both just And yet, at the very same time, gracious. That is the tension that runs through, really, the whole Old Testament, but particularly it runs through the book of Judges. And we see it resolved when we get to the New Testament. How does God handle this tension? Judges chapter 1, verse 1, and this is the thing that just took me to the floor this week. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The book of Judges opens with a question. And if you see there, it says, who will go up and fight for us? In other words, who's going to take care of all the evil in the world? And did you know if you were to read through the book of Judges, every time that is asked, the answer over and over is, send the tribe of Judah. Judah will go up and fight for us. Judah will drive out the wickedness that is tearing the world apart. And what we're going to see this fall is Judges is actually an apologetic for a godly covenant-keeping king. And when we go through Judges, we are going to get to some very low places, and it's meant to be because it's meant for the people to cry out for a godly king who will come and be faithful to God and lead the people in righteousness. And so in the context, this is actually pointing... And is setting up the kingship of David, the man after God's own heart, who we studied last fall. But we know that it ultimately points to who? King Jesus. Think about this. The English Bible that you are holding ends with the book of Malachi. But the Hebrew Bible, it has the same books in it, but they're in a different order. It ends with the book of Second Chronicles. And you know how book of 2nd Chronicles ends let him go up let him go up and it's a cry from King Cyrus to the people of Israel who are still a complete train wreck who will go up that's the question who will go up and save the people from their mess and misery and we get to Matthew and we read that genealogy that we think we can just skip over in our Bible reading because it's boring And you know what it says? You know who will go up? The line of Judah. Someone in the line of Judah. Someone whose name is Jesus. The warrior. The deliverer. The one to whom the whole Old Testament points. And the book of Judges points. Because Jesus, you see, is the true judge. And he's the one who will go up. And he is the one who will fight and reconcile this tension between God's grace and God's justice. And how does he do it? He does it by going up to a cross. It's been said that at the cross, that's where the tension's solved. 
It's been said that at the cross, justice and mercy and justice and grace, they kiss. In Judges chapter 1, you see it's not the only place where God's judgment comes into the present and intrudes the present moment. There is another place where God's justice comes into the present moment, and it's when Jesus has his arms spread on a cross, and this time when God's judgment comes into the world, it doesn't fall on a Canaanite king. It falls on King Jesus. And as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, he is experiencing the divine justice of God. He's experiencing God's wrath. Every single drop of it fell on him so that there's none left for you if you're a believer in Jesus this morning. He took all of your evil and your cruelty and the terrible things that you've done. He took the punishment that we deserve. Why? Well, because he loves you. And because he really wants to be with you. You see it? You cannot, if you don't believe in a God of judgment, you'll never really get Jesus. If you don't believe in a God of judgment, Jesus will never be sweet to you. And Jesus will never melt your heart. You see, the Bible says that God is just and gracious at the same time. Because those come together at the cross in Jesus himself. See, that's a preview of the book of Judges. Buckle up. (laughs) It's going to get wild. It's going to get crazy, but it's also going to be a lot of fun. I want you to see, I'll close with this, that in the midst of the craziness, you know what I think? I think you're going to find a book that is water to your weary soul this fall. Because despite what we might think, the book of Judges is extremely relevant. Because you know what? The book of Judges shows you that you have a God that meets you in the midst of your real life. A God who's not afraid of the messiness. Whatever it is that your mess that you're in at this current time, God is not afraid and the book of Judges shows you that. Maybe this week, you're going to do something that you never thought you would do. Maybe this week you're going to do the thing again that you said, oh, I thought I was done with this sin. And it's going to pop up again. And all of this shame is going to become, come pouring into your heart this week. This is why the book of Judges is relevant. And in those moments, here's what you're going to say. God's got to be tired of me. Can I really go back to him again? There is no way he wants anything to do with me. The book of Judges is relevant because it says, look, if God can forgive these people and love these people and be committed to these people and whatever they're going through, he can certainly be committed to you, I promise you. And whatever it is that you find yourself in the middle of this week, Judges is going to be extremely relevant to us. I hope you'll come back next week as we continue this ride through the book of Judges. Let me pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to go up. To go up and fight for us. To do what we could never do to save us from our sin and misery. Lord, would you forgive us this morning for our rebellion? Forgive us for our rebellious hearts and divided hearts. Forgive us for where we say we can't, but the reality is, if we're honest, we just really don't want to. 
I pray this fall through this book that you would show us our own rebellion, but also point us to the solution for our rebellion, and that is our true judge, Jesus. Convince us that he is what we most need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.